if it encourages them in some way to to strike out or have a go or change something in their life uh, to to make it happen, then uh, then so much the better. Hello and welcome to Unfinishing, the podcast about things that are incomplete, abandoned or not public. My name's Emily Anderson and my guest in this episode is someone who has undertaken the absolutely extraordinary feat of sailing single-handedly, almost non-stop around the world. His name is Guy Waits and he's here to tell me about what happened when he entered the Golden Globe race. The race challenges solo sailors to circumnavigate the globe without using modern technology. Over the course of the race, Guy and the other entrants faced huge storms, enormous waves, and of course, the immense psychological challenge of being alone for months and months. But, incredibly, it wasn't any of those challenges that prevented Guy from finishing his circumnavigation in one go. It was barnacles. So many barnacles attached themselves to Guy's boat and slowed him down so much that he was forced to stop to remove them. Somewhat brilliantly though, and despite having been excluded from the race, Guy decided to continue with his journey. And he completed his circumnavigation after 287 days at sea, and also having run out of food for the last few of those days. Before we get to the interview, all that remains for me to say is that if you have an unfinished, abandoned or private project that you'd like to talk about, you can get in touch via email on unfinishing.pod at gmail.com or I'm on Instagram at unfinishingpod or Twitter at truebagglerag. So the first thing that I kind of wanted to ask you about is that when we first started talking about you doing this episode, you weren't immediately available because I think you said you were on a boat heading towards Lanzarote. And I just kind of <laughs> wanted to ask you what you were doing on that trip. What was happening? Yeah. So, um, I, a, a good friend of mine actually got in touch, uh, with me just after the end of the Golden Globe race mm. and asked me if I would like to do some sailing and racing with him on his boat. And having, having just come back from sailing all the way around the world, uh, and not earning a penny the the opportunity to earn a living um, yeah. was quite important so no sooner had i arrived back than i hopped on a boat and did some more sailing <laughs> yeah. fabulous and not many people get to be professional sailors can i ask you a little bit about your background in sailing how did you get started and how did you get to do what you do at the moment yeah absolutely um well, i didn't i i didn't have a uh, a conventional sort of uh, introduction to to sailing you might mm. say a, a lot of people um, learn to sail uh, when they're children in dinghies for instance um, yeah. or perhaps their parents sail etc but I grew up in the middle of Yorkshire and about as far away from the sea as <laughs> as can be in the United Kingdom and didn't actually set foot on a sailing boat until I was 25 years old when I was invited by a a work colleague and it was a very late November back end of the sailing season in fact it really wasn't the sailing season it was winter and it was bitterly cold but i loved every minute of it and i've always been attracted to water ever since i was a child from from my early swimming days and uh, and from trips to the seaside with mum and dad for all those family years 
I suppose it was a very natural thing to do, albeit rather late in life. Um, but uh, I was hooked from that day onwards. Although I didn't start sailing for professional reasons until even later still, because when I left school, I went into the world of photography and was a photographer for many years until uh, the world of digital took over from film and uh, slowly um, eroded all my love of photography. And so I had a few, I had a few years drifting around in Royal Mail, <laughs> yeah. which is probably, probably the best way to describe it. It didn't suit me at all. And then I got involved in the Clipper Around the World race as a first mate in 2018 and did half the race from Australia all the way back to Liverpool, which was the finish for that race. And then signed up for the following race, the 2019-2020 the race, as the skipper uh, of a boat called Dare to Lead, mm -hmm. which unfortunately was stopped by the pandemic uh, yeah. when we were just over halfway around the world and uh, in the Philippines. And, and then that basically led into the Golden Globe race. Well, that's perfect for this podcast, actually, because that's an unfinished <laughs> An unfinished voyage that led to something else happening, which is very exciting. Can I just quickly ask you whether you, I'm interested in what you said about photography there. Do you do you take your camera with you when you sail at all or, or have you totally kind of moved on from photography now? Well, that's that's a very good question. It's, uh, it's kind of curious that uh, once I came out of photography, I'd done so much photography for so many years that I, you know, I wasn't the least bit interested in carrying a camera around with me anywhere I went. Like a great many people, I'm, I make do with my phone uh, mm -hmm. most of the time. And, uh, and funnily enough, the, it was actually the Golden Globe race because it's a retro race yeah. based on the, the technology uh, that was available to the sailors in the original race in 1968. Uh, so we're going, we're going back now about 55 years, I think. Uh, there's no digital photography allowed in the Golden Globe race, right. uh, other than other than video. So you can take a little GoPro with you to shoot video because they they're interested in the in the sort of social media content they can get from it. Yeah. Um, but if you take a camera, it has to be an old school film camera with no uh, with no digital microprocessor in it or anything like that. So for the first time in years and years and years, I found myself picking up a film camera. And taking pictures, black and white pictures as well as I as I went around the world. So it's kind of, in a way, I kind of come come full circle. Yeah. yeah. And did they come out well? Uh, not bad. Um, <laughs> I'm obviously a bit rusty. In fact, I actually processed those two black and white films just the other day at home. Um, I managed to find a little processing kit on the internet and had it delivered to home, and uh, mixed up the chemicals and uh, put the film into a into a, a processing container and uh yeah. i've got the results but i i don't have any printing facilities so i'm now i'm now of course looking for for some way of printing them to actually see the results but you know they, they look okay and we've mentioned the golden globe race now so i think we should dive into that and i at this point i do obviously want to say a huge congratulations actually for doing it it's just an enormous wonderful thing to have started it's an enormous wonderful thing to have finished in your own time but before we kind of go into it could you explain maybe for listeners who don't know about it what it is certainly um so the golden globe race was originally run back in 1968 and it was 
basically a follow-on from the achievement of Francis Chichester, who became Sir Francis Chichester, as a result of sailing single-handed around the world with one stop in Australia, where he reprovisioned his boat, uh, had a refit, you know, put some new sails on, et cetera, et cetera. And back then, in, in that was, I think, 1966, 67, that uh, he achieved that. The, the belief was that, you know, a person would go crazy if they tried to spend that much time on their own. But of course, when, when Francis Chichester sailed around the world with one stop, that begs the question, can someone do it nonstop? And um, there were a number of sailors around the world who were clearly thinking about taking on the challenge. And the Sunday Times, in fact, were, were really quite clever. They basically invented a race around the people who were thinking of trying to set a new world record and effectively um, embroiled them in it, whether they liked it or not. So a really quite interesting way to build a race. Very clever. Yeah. Uh, it was that it was the brainchild of a of a Fleet Street um, newspaper man, and that uh, basically the Golden Globe race was born. And of the nine entrants back in uh, 1968, only one man returned nonstop, and that was the man we know today as Sir Robin Knox Johnston. So then it lay dormant for 50 years, and you know nothing. Uh, the race never ran again mm. until. I think it was about 2013 or 2014, and an Australian by the name of Don McIntyre put forward the idea of having a 50th anniversary of the race in 2018, and it just went from there. It was uh, it had 18 entrants, uh, six of the of the 18 made it round, and one of those uh, made it after a, a very long stop in Australia himself. Yeah. And so without going into too much uh, detail, because you may have more questions, that's basically the sort of background story to the Golden Globe race. Sure. And you mentioned Sir Robin Knox Johnston there, and I noticed on your website that you had some support from him from your own race. Tell me about that and how that came about. Yeah, so it was actually the day I arrived at the Clipper race head office down in, uh, in Gosport to sign my skipper's contract for the 2019-2020 race when I announced to Sir Robin that I'd actually signed up for the Golden Globe race as well in, in 2022. And he was absolutely delighted, <laughs> uh, you know, full of enthusiasm uh, for the fact that I was, uh, was going to, you know, give it a go, as it were. At that point, he, he offered me his support. Now, the pandemic got in the way. And and his support amounted to basically his his uh, his encouragement for me to do it rather than any yeah. kind of physical support. But um, I was I was very grateful for that. You know, it's uh, it's a uh, it's it's a great um, sort of pat on the back, really, to have someone Absolutely. like Sir Robin to to wish you well in such a such an endeavour. I, I remember reading his book years and years ago when I was a kid, um, and just thinking it was completely extraordinary. Just an amazing achievement to think. Uh, the, the book you mentioned is A World of My Own. Mm. And uh, I've, I read that many years ago. Uh, just one of the books that's been inspiring me over the years to, to want to sail single-handed around the world. So was it a difficult decision for you to enter? It sounds like it's something that you'd wanted to do for a while. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a piece of cake. <laughs> the idea... <laughs> 
the idea of signing up to one of the biggest challenges uh, that there is in the world, let alone sailing, was actually possibly one of the easiest things to do and certainly a good deal easier than getting to the start line, uh, <laughs> let alone making it in one piece around the world. You know right from the get-go that this is not going to be easy. In fact, it's yeah. going to be the complete opposite. So you're under no illusions about the, the magnitude of the challenge, but the decision to, to enter the Golden Globe race really was, uh, was the easiest part of the whole process. <laughs> what was the preparation then? I imagine it's just an enormous task. It is, yeah. And um, in actual fact, one of the biggest parts of the challenge is, as I've just mentioned, getting to the start line. Yeah. Uh, just to give you a, uh, some kind of framework around that, a year before race start, there were 30 entrants in the race. Mm -hmm. And come September the 4th, which was the start of the Golden Globe race in 2022, there were only 16 of us made it across the start line. Oh, wow. So, you know, you've already lost almost half the fleet yeah. um, of entrants. It was, it was a long, long process. I used, not surprisingly, a lot of social media to keep the idea of my entry in the race as fresh in people's minds as possible. There was no way I could afford to get to the start line with my own finances. I, I had to find sponsorship yeah. and funding from, from not just somewhere, but many sources, as it turned out. I had a little house that I'd bought many years ago and had renovated in Nottingham, but I was now living in Yorkshire and I, I wanted to to get rid of the house. I'd, and so in actual fact, selling the house was what bought me the boat. Mm. So I was pretty heavily committed uh, myself. But at that point, I had no more money left. And, yeah. and the boat needed a lot of work to bring it up to, um, to the right sort of standard for sailing around the world. And that's when the hunt for sponsorship started. We managed to raise a little bit of money on, uh, through a GoFundMe which was, you know, had some very generous donations uh, from people there, for which, of course, we're, you know, enormously grateful. And then it wasn't until Christmas before race start that I actually started to get my first sponsorship. Mm. Um, and at that point, I basically stopped work and because I had to focus on the boat. Yeah. There was just no way I was going to be ready for race start if I just didn't work seven days a week, which I did. Uh, right up to September the 4th. And in fact, I didn't get my last, my final sponsor, which allowed me to start the race uh, with a little bit of money in the bank rather than debt until literally days before race time. That's, that's how uh, touch and go it was. And I think I saw on one of your videos that, were you trying out a sale for the first time actually on the race? Oh, not just one sale, Emily. It was about four. You know, I, I had... <laughs> I had a total of nine sails on the boat. The rules, yeah. the rules of the race restrict you to 10 sails. I had nine okay. and four of them I'd never even tried before race start. Wow. Um, I was just too busy with too many things trying to get the boat, you know, ready and, and myself as well prepared as possible to actually go and do test sailing with, with new sails. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I really, we hit the start line running, no doubt about it. <laughs> And then after the actual start line, so I think, so in the original race, one person finished. I think you said in the 2018 race, six people finished out of 18. What are the challenges that the boats face as part of their journey that means that people don't always make it all the way around? Yeah, I think there's two challenges there. There's the individual challenge, 
okay, and, and which is not to be underestimated. Some people quite simply are just not that good on their own for a long period of time. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that's the biggest challenge for some individuals. And then the, the other challenge, of course, is, is mother nature. And, and it, that takes its toll, uh, not just on you, the individual, but in specifically on the boat. And we had in the 2018 race, you know, rollovers because of large breaking waves and dismastings. Uh, we had uh, self-steering gear failure. This is the device, the mechanical device that sits on the back of the boat and steers the boat for you um, so that you can do all the other things that you need to do because you can't just helm a boat 24 hours a day. So there's a lot of weather-related problems. And that's, I'd say, that's the, that's the largest part of the challenge. And then, of course, you've got the individual challenges that uh, that people face, and 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 as a result, you get many retirements. I'm fascinated by the extent to which you must have to back yourself to be able to deal with anything that goes wrong to do that kind of solo sailing. How do you how do you build up that kind of confidence? Well, that's you've hit the nail on the head in the question, and that's build up. Okay. <laughs> you you. It's curious to me, actually, um, that some people, uh, well, I don't suppose it's, it's not a surprise at all that people dream about doing these kinds of challenges. But at some point, you've got to have a sense of reality and actually say to yourself, just how capable am I of achieving this? Robin Knox Johnson did not start his attempt to sail single-handed nonstop around the world with very little experience. He'd sailed his boat halfway around the world already. He was a, a merchant seaman. He knew how to navigate and sail his boat long before he actually started what became the Golden Globe race. And myself, I'd been sailing prior to race start. I'd been sailing for 30 years. I'd sailed the Atlantic single-handed five times. I'd sailed around the world in the Clipper race. You know, I had tens and tens of thousands of, of sea miles and ocean miles um, in my logbook. So it was basically, for me, it was the next step. Yeah. And there was only one part of the race course that, that I hadn't actually sailed. And that was the part from Tasmania across to Cape Horn. Every other part of the, the race course, the circumnavigation, I'd sailed at least once before. So, mm. you know, it, it was not a surprise to me what I was walking into. And that helps you prepare not just your boat, but mentally as well. And that's, mm. that's not to be underestimated, I don't think. And have you had, I mean, you must have had, I guess, moments where you are on your boat and you, you doubt whether you can handle something? Uh, well, the, the biggest problem, as I've already said, is Mother Nature. And, it's, yeah. and of course, it's, it's, when, it's when the gales and the storms come. It's not, it's not when it's uh, gentle and uh, idyllic. But I, I've been through those situations before. I, I didn't doubt my ability you're always concerned about your boat. It doesn't matter how well you prepare it. When the waves are big enough to knock you down and potentially roll you over, you worry about your mast. That's the big one. Mm. Um, so you, you do worry about potential damage to the boat that could result in you retiring or worst case scenario, even needing rescue, which was the case for three of the entrants in the, in the race in 2022. Right. Um, fortunately, in, in, in spite of all the other problems I had, which did get in the way of me completing <laughs> the GPR, none of them was sufficiently big enough to stop me actually circumnavigating. And, and Sagamata, my, my boat, arrived back 
in La Sandalon in remarkably good condition. So I can sort of be quietly pleased with myself that I, I did a pretty thorough job of preparing the boat. That's an interesting name for your boat, Sagamata. Does it have a meaning? Yes, it does. Um, and in actual fact, it's not the name that uh, I gave the boat. It was the previous owner entered the 2018 Golden Globe race in Sagamata, and his name was Kevin Fairbrother. He's summited Mount Everest four times. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, really, real incredible achievement right there. And at the time of the 2018 GGR, he climbed Everest three times. And Sagamata is the Nepali name for the Mount Everest region. And, um, and what I've also subsequently learned from uh, a follower of the, of the Golden Globe race, who is uh, Indian, is that Sagamata in Sanskrit, the ancient tongue of India, which is most likely where Nepal, uh, the Nepali language comes from, Sagamata in Sanskrit means mother of the sea. Oh, wow. um, because, of course, when Mount Everest melts, uh, or the snow in the Himalaya melts, it flows into the Ganges, and the Ganges is a very revered river because as far as the Indians concerned, it gives birth to the Indian Ocean. So hence, you've got Mother of the Sea. So it's a, it's a lovely name. It's perfect. And I, you know, we have no intentions of changing it. And uh, she's still called Sagamata to this day. That's a great name. That's, that's lovely. Um, okay, so let's come to the 2022 race. Could you talk me through your story of what happened? How did you start off? And then I am going to have to ask you about what happened with the barnacles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd struggle to avoid that question. I? Um, well, first of all, you leave, you leave the Biscay coast of France, Le Sable de Long, and we had very light winds to start with. And uh, it, it actually took uh, almost a full week to get out of the Bay of Biscay and to get around Cape Finisterre, where you start heading south for the Canary Islands, which is the first kind of uh, sort of meeting point with the GGR race team. So we had a fairly gentle and steady start to the race. You know, life was good. I was learning how to sail with new sails that I never tried before and all these other things and generally sort of settling in until the Canary Islands where we, as I say, we had the first meeting with the GGR team. You don't actually stop the boat. They just, um, they just video you and interview you from boat to boat ah, out at okay. sea. And because um, it's supposed to be a nonstop race, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> And then you continue south towards the equator, and it was somewhere towards the equator in the doldrums, you know, this, this part of the world where the, the weather systems of the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere collide, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the winds stall. You can have hours, if not days, of very light or no wind at all, and you're drifting around. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's believed that somewhere in that part of the world where the water is very warm, that you can pick up these goose barnacles mm. on the bottom of your boat. But you don't see them at first when they latch themselves on. You, uh, and you continue sailing. Eventually, you find what's called the Southeast Trades uh, as, you, as you head into the, the Southern Hemisphere, and you continue sailing south. And it was around this time that when the boat should have been sailing nicely that I could just detect that something wasn't quite right with Sagamata. I actually put my little GoPro on, onto the end of a, a boat hook, put it in the water underneath the boat, 
and had a good look at, at what was going on. And that's when I could see the first signs of the goose barnacles. And they were like a rash all over the hull of the boat. But I pressed on and, uh, and continued south with the trade winds and their very reliable breeze. It's a, it's a nice stable time where you can generally relax and, uh, and enjoy the sailing. It's not complicated sailing. But these barnacles were growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was slowly slipping further and further behind in the fleet. So of the 16 of us that started, as we rounded Cape Finisterre, I was fifth in the race. I didn't know that at the time mm. because the, um, the nature of the race being a retro race and it's old technology, we don't have access to that kind of information. I found out yeah. subsequently I was in fifth place out of the 16. But by the time I got down into the, into the Southern Hemisphere, I was already at, uh, towards the back of the fleet. There, mm. there, at this point, there'd already been, I think it was three uh, retirements from the race. So out of the 13 that let, was remaining, I was right at the back, uh, somewhere between 10th and 13th. Uh, and it was a gradually worsening situation. At first, I thought I was going to go to a, a port in South America where I could lift the boat out and scrape the barnacles off. Mm. But uh, I, I decided in the, I changed my mind actually and, and, and pressed on for, for Cape Town. By the time I arrived in Cape Town, which was 101 days after race start, I was already somewhere in the region of a whole month behind my planned right. arrival time there. Uh, Cape Town being the second meeting point with the GGR race team. Yeah. So it's effectively a mark of the course. Again, you're not supposed to stop. Uh, by this point, I'd made up the, my mind that uh, having a boat that was sailing so badly and so slowly because of these growing barnacles underneath the boat, the only thing to do was to stop in Cape Town, lift the boat out, scrape them all off, mm. apply new anti-foul paint, which is supposed to keep these sort of creatures off the boat mm. in the first place, and then continue on. Unfortunately, the, the, the race rules mean that once you stop, uh, you're no longer in the race. You're now relegated to what's called Chichester class, as mm -hmm. I explained earlier. Chichester stopped in Australia. Yeah. And anyone who stops on one occasion goes into Chichester class. So that was me uh, in, now out of the race already. Uh, but uh, at least when the boat went back in the water, it was free sailing again. And, and yeah. I <laughs> very quickly rediscovered my love of sailing, thankfully. <laughs> I mean, prior to stopping, Emily, it was absolutely miserable yeah. uh, to be going so slowly. It really was. And, and so it was, it was the, on, a, on a number of levels, it was the obvious thing to do. Even though it meant I was no longer in the GGR, it was just a case of stop the boat, sort the problem out and get going again. That then led to further problems because I'm now so far behind in time. Mm. There's a, a date cutoff point for reaching Hobart. But if you don't get to the Hobart Gate in Tasmania, by the 31st of January, you're, you're no longer in the GGR at all. You, you know, you're excluded from the whole event. Yeah. And that, that was the next problem for me in, in that, uh, well, in actual fact, just before getting to Tasmania, to Hobart, there was a storm came right over the top of Sagamata and I, and a big wave knocked Sagamata down. And it was so powerful, it actually broke the life raft off the boat and yeah. threw it overboard. And the whole lot just disappeared. <laughs> um, so I now had to stop in Cape Town because I couldn't realistically continue without a life raft. 
So I stopped in Hobart. I was I arrived there on the 10th of February, so I'm now 10 days behind the the race rules. So I was removed from the race. Mm. I felt rather persona non grata, mm. I have to admit, uh, because you're taken off the race tracker. You no longer call the race office once a week on your satellite phone. You're no longer sending uh, daily tweets uh, to the race office, which obviously they're putting out on social media. You just feel as though you're halfway around the world, you're as far away from home as you can possibly be, and you're just dropped like a stone, you know, which yeah. is kind of a very un unpleasant experience. Yeah. But it's all in the race rules. You sign up to it. You know this is what you're walking into, and you can't argue uh, with the race rules. It's, uh, it is what it is, so you just have to accept it and, and, and continue on. And that's so hard as well, isn't it, yeah. given that this problem started at least not with an enormous wave or horrendous weather, but with barnacles of all things. It's such yeah, frustrating. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. It's very frustrating, you know, and it, it was, uh, and at the time I discovered them, I was effectively in the middle of nowhere, you know, yeah. in, in the middle of the ocean, uh, about as far away from land as you could possibly be with a problem that I, I just could not deal with. Yeah. Uh, whilst I was there, you know, on the boat or in the water, I I went in the water a couple of times to try and scrape them off, and it was just hopeless. It was as though they'd been glued on with the strongest glue you could possibly imagine. So by the time I arrived in Cape Town, as I say, it was a miserable situation that the for which there was only one solution, and uh, yeah, a very frustrating situation, particularly so because of all the preparation and yeah. all the work that gone into the project all the sort of planning and dreaming and the, the sponsorship and the donations and the work done to the boat, you know, but that actually became a motivator to keep going in, in yes. spite of being excluded from the race because I had all that support that had got me that far. I didn't want to let go of, of the, the dream of sailing around the world and I didn't want to let anyone down either. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit more about that choice to carry on with the circumnavigation? So, Again, it sounds like it wasn't a difficult decision, and you were you were just quite determined to do it. Yeah, I, it um, it well, it's curious because a lot of people ask me this question, and 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 I, the way I kind of answer it is, it wasn't a question of why give up. It was why would I give up? You know, I mean, it's if you've got some idea of just how hard I'd work just to get that far. And, and when you're halfway around the world, I mean, literally halfway around the world, mm. it's as far to come home in any direction. So you may as well keep going. You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's not actually that difficult. But there, there was one difficult part, really, and that was that it was getting late in the season. And this was a whole point of the 31st of January cutoff point at Hobart, because if you then head out across the South Pacific Ocean for Cape Horn, Mm. Uh, you're getting later and later in the, the, the season. In some ways, there's never a good time to go around Cape Horn, okay? But you may as well make it as good for yourself as you can. And I was definitely leaving it late in the year. And in actual fact, I rounded Cape Horn on April the 4th, which uh, is, by all accounts, pretty late for sure. Yeah. But uh, the, the nice thing actually was I didn't have to comply with the race rules anymore. Mm. And that meant that I could actually sail further south, mm -hmm. which in some ways is more dangerous because you're further and further away from, from any possible help if you were to get into difficulties. 
but it does help you with your choices concerning the weather. Mm. And there is really only one thing you're interested in when you're sailing, and that is the weather. That's the that's the thing that uh, enables you to get where you want to go or not. So, uh, so there were, there were some some pros and cons. But I know I know some people, including the race organizer, presumed I would throw the towel in and and fly home from from Tasmania. But uh, obviously, they didn't know me very well. <laughs> um, having having come as far as I had in so many ways, Emily, I was all the more determined to keep going and uh, and make it all the way back to the finish. Yeah. And you mentioned that as part of the race, because it's a, a retro race, that you don't have loads of contact with people, but you did have check-ins and so on, and that that finished when you were then out there by yourself. But did you have your own support team back home on land who were in the background? Yes, very much so. Once I was no longer in the GGR, I, I was free to, to contact Julie, my wife, mm. or, or anyone, really. And they, the, the tracker was still working. It's just I wasn't showing up on the Golden Globe race tracker anymore. Mm. Uh, we had our own tracking website that you could follow my progress. Every four hours, it updates. Part of the, the GGR situation is that you're no longer given weather information if there's any bad weather coming. So yeah. I, I contacted a friend of mine uh, called Nick Leggett, who's a very experienced sailor. He's sailed around the world six times, and he, he lives in Cape Town. I would get a text message from him uh, every day or so with the, the latest weather information so that I, was, uh, I at least had some idea of what was coming behind me uh, in terms of weather systems. And that helped keep me, you know, to some extent safe. Yeah, in actual fact, because I was no longer making the daily tweets and no longer doing the weekly satellite phone calls, I was in in some way I felt disconnected mm. um, from uh, from the event and my my participation in it and my fellow sailors who were still at this point taking part in the race. Mm. But uh, in, in other ways, it was quite freeing and liberating uh, because I no longer was bound by anyone else's rules and I what I once what I would say about the golden globe race and single-handed sailing is that one of the biggest motivating factors for people who go sailing single-handed is the sense of freedom that they have when they're out there in the middle of the ocean on their own yeah and the rules of the golden globe race are some 70 pages long uh so there's a bit of a, a contradiction there yeah. that, you know, you one of the things you enjoy is the the sense of freedom. And I say sense for a particular reason, because, you know, free what is freedom? I mean, really. But uh, without going into that too much, there's certainly a sense of freedom when you're on your own. You're you're ungoverned by anyone else's rules. You're you're beholden to no one but Mother Nature, really. And that's a very it's a very freeing experience. And then on the other hand, of course, you're you're absolutely bound, uh, well and truly bound by the rules of the Golden Globe race. So actually, to no longer be bound by those rules was, as I say, very very freeing, and uh, allowed me to just enjoy the sailing for the sailing sake. Sagamata and I had a great time. <laughs> 
So this is one of the things, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but this is one of the things that I'm interested in and I think people listening will be as well, is what is the appeal? And you talked about that freedom there. Is that then presumably the main appeal of this kind of solo sailing? Because as you said at the beginning, a lot of people would think spending a year by myself on a boat where things could go horribly wrong would not be their idea of fun. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, to be perfectly honest with you, if I was the kind of person who got lonely or uh, didn't, uh, you know, couldn't cope with too much time on my own, then um, I, I would find it very difficult, and I probably wouldn't do it. But it's, yeah. it's something that I've done ever since I was a child. You know, that sort of ability to wander off on your own uh, without a care in the world, yeah. and so that combined with sailing. And you've got solo sailing uh, in a nutshell. So it was uh, it was a perfect opportunity for me. And you did make it back home. What did it feel like to get home? Oh, it was fantastic because you know it, it's been uh, basically thirty years of dreaming um, mm. has been you know realised or accomplished. You might say that's not to be underestimated. <laughs> um, you know when you when you realise that sort of depth of goal. But at the same time, there's a little, there's a, there is a sense of unfinished business mm. um, because uh, because it wasn't quite nonstop, was it? You know. Yeah. So, uh, but the nice thing for me, and it's not not the first time I felt this about any event that I've taken part in, uh, is that I've never wanted to enter an event thinking this will be the one and only time I ever do this in my life. You know, I've I've never wanted to do anything where the you know one of the outcomes is never again. So there's, there is hope for the future and uh, of, a, of another circumnavigation, hopefully nonstop. Yeah. And do you have a, a specific plan to, to start that or is that still in a embryonic thought stage? Oh, yeah, it's very much embryonic at the moment. Yeah. Um, I'm still recovering financially from, uh, sure. <laughs> from, the, from the GGR. The financial burden is not to be underestimated. But uh, there's a curious thing actually that one of my earliest solo experiences was taking part in an event called the Jester Challenge, which is very, very different to the GGR. There are in fact no rules whatsoever. Okay. There are there are no entry fees. And the challenge is to sail single-handed across the Atlantic. So uh which is no mean feat in itself. Yeah. And uh and I, you know, I I didn't make it the first attempt at that either. I had to I had to wait until the following year when I, I had another attempt and made it across the Atlantic to Newport, Rhode Island after 42 days alone in the Atlantic. The Jester Challenge ethos, or one of very a part of it, is that, uh, that there are no entry fees because it's understood that that money is far better spent on your boat in preparation mm -hmm. for the challenge ahead. And that's something that... Uh, I think has escaped the Golden Globe race. Yeah, <laughs> but, sure. uh, you know, it's a it's a big financial commitment. Uh, one I made. I don't regret it. Uh, I don't regret my part in the race. And if 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 there were a big sponsor out there who wanted to to get behind me, then I I, I would happily go again. There's yeah. no doubt about it. But I wouldn't want to do it the way I did it this time. It was uh, it was very difficult. Apart from anything else, I didn't actually realise I'd have the money to do it until literally days before race start. And that's not a comfortable place to be. Indeed, yeah. Actually, speaking of discomfort uh, in a terrible segue, am I right in saying that you ran out of food before you got back as well? <laughs> yes, I did. Um, 
and I'm laughing because it's not the first time that I've run out of food right. actually Emma. but um uh, on a previous occasion which was actually my first crossing of the Atlantic I ran out of food and water as well uh so I actually arrived in the US nil by mouth for 48 hours which is not a great place to be no. um this time I ran out of food about two days before I arrived, but I had plenty of water left. So, okay. uh, so I'm obviously learning something. <laughs> and what did you do that evening or that day when you got back? What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, eat and drink and yeah. sleep. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and, and, uh, and not, uh, not sleep until I'd have a very long soak in a bathtub. It's sure. basically... It's all the things that you that you don't have when you're sailing around the world on your own. Yeah. Uh, like the luxury of a bath, fresh food. Obviously, what you're eating is basically comes out of packets or tins. Yeah. Um, you know, and a few nice glasses of wine, for instance. Uh, they 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 go down well too. Ever since I first started sailing. The books and the magazine articles that always drew my attention were the ones about the lone sailors, the solo circumnavigators or the solo racers. They've inspired me for years and years and years. So as if I've done anything, if I've in some way inspired people to, to take on their own challenges and do the things that they've always dreamed and aspired to do, then it won't have been for nothing. <laughs>